I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're on Team Human, rest stop on the information superhighway. A moment to press pause and ask, what are we doing for whom and why? Winter may be coming, but we are an adaptable species. Our ability to withstand what lies ahead will depend on our resilience, our solidarity, and the extent to which we can keep our evolved social mechanisms functioning in a world that has been designed to atomize, isolate, and divide us. Playing for Team Human today, founder of Soil and Shadow, Nikki Silvestri. My central tenet with soil is humility. It's so complex and it's so dynamic. It's like the brain and it's like the soul. Nikki will be talking with us about her work doing economic development and environmentalism in Oakland, California and beyond. How learning to approach our challenges systemically rather than tactically is the way to create system-wide distributed results. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I don't usually talk about real politics, but the tax plan that is moving between the House and the Senate is really interesting. You know, most of us, I'm I'm still sort of more from the artsy side of things, and Try not to read, you know, really wonky stuff. You know, it's only been in recent years that I've even looked at things like tax plans and the Fed and percents of interest and all that sort of stuff. And you, I mean, any one of us can basically figure out that if there's a tax plan coming down from this administration, it's going to be bad for us, right? Just because. But it's really interesting to look at this tax plan because it is so targeted against people who didn't vote for Trump. It's it's brilliant in that way. So it's a tax plan that really simply what it does is it does something really big and good for the upper class and for big corporations. It kind of shows something good that's not real, but it shows up good for the lower class. It ends up any benefits are outweighed by the fact that they're losing health care and other sorts of cuts. But it's kind of the same as when uh, when they bring like 20 jobs back to the carrier plant. You know, it, it plays well, even though it's meaningless or bad. But what it does is it attacks the upper middle class. It attacks the white collar workers of blue states like New York, Massachusetts, and California that didn't support Trump. Right. So one way they do that is by killing the state tax exemption. Now, what this means is if you live in a place like New York, you pay federal tax 
on, you know, all that W-4 and 1099 and all those kind of forms. You know, you fill out your real tax form. And then you also do state taxes. You do like a New York state tax on top of that or a California tax or a Jersey tax. These are the kind of states where you have a really high state tax because there's all these different services that we do in, in states like this where we have a state school system and different sorts of things. So that money that you spend on your state tax is usually deductible on your federal tax. So if you've made, you know, $60,000 in a year and you paid $10,000 to New York State or to California, then you really only pay tax on the 50,000 on on what's left over. So this is going to eliminate that, which again is totally targeted. It's just saying, "Okay, you you people in those states that have high state tax because you're generally a bit more leftist and deal with higher taxes, that's no longer deductible. Screw you." The second thing they did, you know, and this is this is the funny part. I, I wouldn't have said anything about it because I'm thinking, yeah, whatever. Uh, it's a one particular tax. But if you look deeper in, if you look at the corporate tax changes, there's a bunch of different kinds of corporations out there. There's something called C-Corps, which are like big corps, like like Exxon or, or AT&T, whatever. Those are big corporations. No, no little person is going to have a C-Corp. They get their taxes reduced way down. You know, and partly it's to get them to bring their money back to the states, but partly it's just to be friendly to corporations because they love big corporations. Big rich people also get a nice nice tax deductions. But S corps, which are the kind of corporations that regular people have, like a a doctor or a lawyer or even if a uh, uh, a plumber or an electrician wants to form a little corporation, a sole proprietorship corporation, because it's a better uh, structure for them financially. Even them, they have these things called S-corps. And all the corporate tax taxes are lowered. And even to some extent, some of these S-corp taxes are lowered, except for S-corps that are organized around professional services like consultants, doctors, lawyers, architects, accountants, engineers. Those job categories are explicitly they're explicitly denied lower rates. You know, plumbers, contractors, store owners, and people who have kind of real businesses or blue-collar businesses, they still get some of the benefits. You know, and also the the owners and employees uh, in startups of of tech companies. The bill wipes out any benefit that they get from their stock options because what happens now is if you get stock options from one of those companies, you have to pay tax on those stock options whether or not you exercise them, whether or not you ever see the money from it. You still have to pay the taxes on what the paper value is. So it's almost as if it's not almost as this. It is as if what they're doing is targeting college-educated, white, suburban, upper-middle-class professionals. So much so that one of the other specified changes is to take interest on student loans, which has always been deductible, and to say, no, interest on student loans is no longer a deductible expense. So who is that penalizing? College graduates. And who are college graduates? College graduates are the people who are less likely to vote for Trump. Small businesses that make over $260,000 or under $37,000 do better. Everybody between 37 and 260, just basically the upper middle class, they get screwed. So what are they really saying? They're saying, you teachers and lawyers and educated professionals, you want to be part of that middle class? You identify with the middle class? Well, here you go. We'll level that playing field between the upper middle class and the working class. You identify with those workers? You want to march in the street with those workers? Well, here you go. Now you've got the same income as those workers. Business billionaires and millionaires? Well, we don't count. You know, if you want to be one of us, you can go into business. And you can compete like anybody else. Otherwise, you stay down there with the rest of the downtrodden. You know, you can't get wealthy as a professional. You can't get wealthy as an employee. You can only get wealthy if you're entrepreneurial. 
not supporting institutions, but tearing them down, creative destruction. And if you don't want to do that, if you're not willing to go to war in that way, then accept your fate. You're not really in business and you don't deserve to be rich. The part we have to look at, though, and we have to really evaluate for ourselves, is whether we are hypocrites for wanting to have $100,000 jobs doing social good or still calling ourselves members of the middle class. At least they, the Republicans, at least they're honest about the cutthroat dog-eat-dog landscape they're building. We upper-middle-class progressives, we college professors and doctors and lawyers and well-meaning people, we hide our wealth and privilege the way hippies did at Woodstock. You know, if we want a more equally distributed economy, we better think about exactly how we want to object to being the first ones on the chopping block. I'm Francis Morope, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Adam Eichen, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Andy Fisher, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard Heinberg, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Marina Gorbis, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human, our guest today, Soil and Shadow founder Nikki Silvestri. So this is a totally strange place to start, but I think you'll you'll appreciate it. Uh, About 15, 20 years ago, I was having this probably altered state discussion with Howard Rheingold. I don't know if you know him. He's one of the early... Uh, cyber thinker folks who was, I mean, he was involved with like Institute of Noetic Sciences and Willis Harmon and Stanford Research Institute. And he's still around and a great, a great thinker about humanizing technology and using tech for human ends and all. And it was when Ray Kurzweil and those guys started talking about artificial intelligence and uploading people to a silicon chip and all that. And I asked him, do you think that's going to be possible? And he said, Doug, they don't even know what's going on in a square centimeter of soil, much less the entirety of a human brain. And the image stuck with me, the idea that there's more going on in soil that meet, than meets the eye. And I've been, it's been just sort of festering back there. And then finally, I start seeing your work, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you see this. You see that the soil is something, it's more than just dirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's become almost a central me- metaphor, allegory, and mm-hmm. well, not just a metaphor, but the reality of a whole uh, systems approach to uh, human impact on our planet. Yes. Where do you start? Like, what's the easiest way to, to start? Is it just explaining to people that soil is alive? You know... So first of all, I want to just note how science fiction is a love of my heart. And the Institute of Noetic Sciences is also a love of my heart. So you starting with that, you're, <laughs> you just gained like 20 points and you're in forever. You're like, oh, beautiful. In. Um, Edgar Mitchell started it because he saw something outside the spaceship when he was on his way back in. <laughs> there it is. Yep. And he's like, okay, there's something. Our species better figure something out soon. Right. Yeah, And I also feel like, so with soil, there's a way that I will just talk about how I started because I feel Uh like that's a great kind of layman's entrance into it, that I had been working with gardening and urban farming and food systems for a really long time, but didn't think about soil, not intentionally. And then I started learning about carbon sequestration and considering the fact that I was into climate change the carbon cycle is a big thing, right? Reducing carbon emissions and the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. But all of that was so linear. And when I heard soil people talk about carbon, it was so nonlinear around, yes, we've depleted the carbon stocks in our soil. And that means that food doesn't have nutrient density. And that means the microbes aren't thriving, et cetera. But if you sequester a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil, then the excess carbon that's acidifying the ocean is going to start coming out. So the numbers in the atmosphere might not change, which means that you need to continue 
sequestering carbon. Like they just went off, though it got more complex, not less complex, and more nonlinear and more circular the more I started learning about soil. And then there was this thing about 18 inches deep versus more than 18 inches deep. I mean, my head was just exploding. So I feel like, and I'm not a soil scientist, so I feel like the core thing that I learned is that we know jack about what's actually happening in soil. There's new data that comes out every two years about, oh, we thought this was happening, now this other thing is happening, and this is how it interacts with our neuroscience because there's these micro nutrients that we had no idea interact this way with the brainstem, and it, the only place you can get it is in nutrient dense soil, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like my central tenet with soil is humility. That it's uh-huh. it's so complex, and it's so dynamic in terms of a living system that it goes all the way back to what you said in the beginning. It's like the brain, and it's like the soul. You can never even know yourself. I mean, we're all subjective about ourselves and we spend our whole lives learning about ourselves, etc. And soil is very similar. So you hear things about soil, like, you know, I read uh, Secret Life of Trees. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my husband's out, favorite books. And you find out that, oh, trees aren't just like these single things. They're all talking to each other. And uh-huh. then there's all these, you know, like mushroom fungus spores in the soil that create this network of communication and then they give nutrients to each other and mm-hmm. all that. So if you just grow trees in dirt, that's not soil, just like find some dirt and stick them in there and they're not all connected through this matrix of stuff, then they're not really trees anymore, right? They're just little lonely tree-like things. Well, one interesting thing about that that I think is fascinating is that it's on this spectrum. Of course, if you just plant trees in dirt, they might completely close up. But there are all these interesting things in that book around how urban trees act completely different than forest trees in terms of sharing information because they are connected. You know, three or five trees on a city block may be connected, but they're not going to connect with the trees across the street because they're in hyper-awareness mode all the time because of the way that the city flows and because of the way their nutrients flow. So they actually fight with each other and form gangs very similar in terms of geography to the way urban people form gangs to protect their resources. So there's actually different groups of tree personalities based on how scarce their resources are based on how we treat them. And I feel like that is so fascinating to me, where the less complex the soil is, the more scarce the beings who live in that soil tend to act to protect themselves. And that's the metaphor that I use when it comes to social systems. It's completely reflective. The more scarce the resources are in a social system, the more different tribes of people start to form to protect themselves and fight each other instead of working in symbiosis and collaboration. And then you got to wonder, well, are these environments set up to set various gangs of poor people against one another? Or are these well-meaning social programs that are just too oversimplified to uh, uh, engender genuine community? I tend to move in the world where I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And that actually, Uh (laughs) what that raises for me is a story about the different folk from Monsanto that I've spoken to, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very rare that I talk to someone from Monsanto who legit thinks that they're destroying the world's soil, you know? Like, from their perspective, they're like, people are dying in different parts of the world because they don't have access to nutrients, And we need to get them access to nutrients as quickly as humanly possible so that children are not starving. And my chemicals are the thing. And my GMO foods are the thing. Right. can make sure that child is not dying. We're going to grow broccoli of some kind on a rock. Exactly. (laughs) And if if you've got to use some radioactive potassium to do it. Right. Right. Then that's what you do because I'm not going to let these kids die. And I feel like at its core... That's actually a very noble aim. And the issue with it is that it's just, it's a bit limited of a view because then you destroy the integrity of the system in the long term. Um, And I feel like when it comes to social systems, it's the same thing. It's very hard for us as humans to confront suffering 
and not try to solve the immediate suffering in front of us as quickly as humanly possible because it makes us uncomfortable to confront it. But that balance between immediate suffering and long-term collective suffering that rolls and becomes this huge juggernaut that then can't be stopped has to be held in balance. Yeah, we were just talking to Andy Fisher. of uh, He wrote Big Hunger, and he was really writing about sort of the hunger industry and that there's a lot of well-meaning people setting up, you know, uh, you know, soup kitchens and food banks, but those just address the stomach that needs food. They're not addressing the system that needs nourishment. Mm-hmm. Exact same concept with most social probes, actually. <laughs> it's the exact same concept of how to balance meeting immediate needs in a way that doesn't degrade the system over the long term. And it's another way, it's another way that I go back to soil because soil trying to create immediate returns on a piece of land in a way that doesn't degrade the soil over the long term is enough to humble anybody. The best farmer will be humbled by that. I know. It's a thing. There's a, a great conversation going on on the Team Human Slack now between uh, a, uh, a permaculture uh, advocate, philosopher, and a woman who's been trying to do organic farming. And the permaculture guy explained how, well, look, they say that the topsoil is going to be gone in 30 years, but we know now that we can farm in such ways that we could restore the topsoil. And then the farmer says, well, yeah, good luck with that. We're trying that. Do you realize how hard that is? And one rainstorm could come and everything blows away or gets or, or all the nutrients that we tried to put on there get washed away. And can we... Can we replace the topsoil? I mean, you're you're not hopeless about this, even though they say now we've got 30 years of topsoil left. Do you think that we can remediate this or treat the soil differently and reverse the whole process? A hundred percent. Absolutely. And that's why my commitment to soil as a metaphor is actually so strong, because the framework and the worldview to approach soil is what creates hope not necessarily the interventions themselves. So an example I would use hmm. is that this, this organic farmer talking about nutrients being washed away in a rainstorm, the Marin Carbon Project, and actually the Carbon Cycle Institute more specifically, came up with, I think, 35 different ways you can put carbon back into soil and build healthy soil, that that can happen, that are on a spectrum from you need nutrients in the soil right now to long-term interventions that get the nutrients in that below 18 inches so that it can't be washed away. Mm. And a combination of these different techniques based on what's actually needed by the land is the thing to do. But the challenge is that if you have a farmer that needs an immediate return and has been doing things one way, they don't have time to sit and create a really complicated carbon farming plan with seven different techniques that get to their immediate and long-term needs. And that's where the bigger picture system comes in. There's a lot of support, a lot of support needed to build healthy soil. And farmers and ranchers need a lot of help to make sure that they can take care of their bottom line while they're building long-term health on their land. But the long-term health of our agricultural soil is in direct opposition to the short-term uh, business needs of big agra. Of big ag, yes. And big ag has, right now anyway, they have more access to the uh, to policy and money than than we do, don't they? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, they do. I mean, because the way they look at it, the less nutrients in the soil, the more they need us to give Roundup and whatever else we do to uh, uh, protect these weakling, non-nutritious plants from calamity. I think that's true. And I think that the part of me that is the benefit of the doubt part of me feels like there are actually so few people that understand land and soil that work at that level that they just literally don't understand Soil degradation for them is a lack of fertilizer that works. Mm. Funny thing is, so I went, I went to uh, this was years ago. I went to uh, Esalen, uh-huh. you know, and it's a great uh, uh, 
uh, spiritual, wonderful retreat place in California. Mm -hmm. And they do organic farming there, vegetables that everybody eats there. And I was walking there with a permaculture guy, and they had just tilled the soil. Mm -hmm. And he was looking at it, and they used these um, kind of corkscrew-like things. You could see in the the soil, the way the soil was left, you could tell they had sort of dug through it with these corkscrew-like devices. And he looked at it, and he said, oh, my God. God, look what they just did to the earth. Because he understood as a permaculture person that that's brutal, the way that they oh. were trying to, it's what they understood though. And these were the, these are organic, well-meaning, mm-hmm. educated farmers still going in with a machine with a corkscrew going, mm-hmm. you know, basically raping the planet to make it more um, open, I guess, to uh, the seeds that they wanted to throw mm-hmm. on. But that's not how we're supposed to treat the soil. But that's the way that we've been taught. And I feel like that's a perfect example of the spectrum of well intentions. Someone who is a agro, big ag, chemical person could have actually the same understanding as an organic farmer in terms of their basic framework for how soil works. And even though one is using chemicals and one is not, the basic worldview is completely not in line with what's actually happening in soil. And so they're destructive, even when they don't mean to be. And that's where I feel like the humility around actually studying. And so another part of why I'm hopeful is that there are communities all over the world. That's actually what agroecology is, is the study of what's actually happening in soil Uh and approaching agriculture from a perspective of healthy ecological systems management. And there are farming communities and ranching communities and peasant farmers all over the world who in thousands of different ways are building healthy soil through their cultural practices. And that's been something that has been really not as understood and has become more political, unfortunately, than it should be because their techniques are brilliant. La Via Campesina is brilliant with the way that they manage land. It's just that peasant farmers are not necessarily well-respected in terms of being researchers. And so I think their techniques are not studied as much as they need to be. Well, and their techniques are not simpatico with the with a growth-based yes. uh, you know, corporate economy. That's exactly right. Which is where a lot of this soil carbon sequestration, big picture and carbon markets and healthy soils initiative, that's where all of that has come from, is the effort right. to try to marry building healthy soil with our current economy. And it's really really, really hard to do both right. of those things at the same time. And where do you find the uh, the green shoots in such a uh, a problem matrix? <laughs> where is it in is it in extreme local solutions to things that aren't trying to do things at scale? Well, it's looking at scale as a spectrum. So absolutely extreme local things can work. But the point is that you can build healthy soil on a large piece of land. So Carbon Cycle Institute is a perfect example to me of a green shoot because they are looking at the matrix of regenerative conservation districts, RCDs, in the state of California, which are these institutions that the California ag folks set up a long time ago to support farmers in the state of California with having technical assistance and the support that they need to to thrive and succeed. And the Natural Conservation Resource Service those folks at the federal level are actually really good about healthy soil. So I feel like there are actually federal and state government agencies that get this stuff. And the Carbon Cycle Institute is trying so hard to make sure that the RCDs are well supported to help farmers get the complexity of this and more importantly, help them develop carbon farming plans that are really reflective of on you know a few thousand acres how you would do this. And there's philanthropists as well, philanthropists and investors who have these working landscapes. I work with one of them. One of, the one that I actually work with the most has a 7,700-acre ranch. And because she's a philanthropist, she just has her people experiment so that farmers who have to pay for their stuff mm-hmm. don't have to and work to distribute what she finds out. So I feel like there's all these people all over the place at the practitioner level that really get the fact that we just have to experiment all over the place and figure out what works and then get that to the ranchers and the farmers as quickly as possible. And that feedback loop is what I work to try to increase 
Right. Well, a lot of your work has to do with. Um, I mean, it's funny. I, I think people listening now are going to figure you're like a a farm girl or something. But a lot of your work is is inner city. You know, Green for All in two thousand nine. You know, you you're promoting really green mm-hmm. employment to get people out of poverty. Uh, the People's Grocery. Um, these are not rural activities so much as as mm-hmm. urban ones. Which is a really funny story in terms of how a girl that grew up in Los Angeles wearing high heels boots to the grocery store became an advocate for rural soil development. I was initially the climate and food systems advocate, as I said, working in primarily urban areas around economic development infrastructure and green infrastructure and food insecurity in urban areas, specifically for marginalized communities. Right, with exactly. food deserts. Food deserts. Right. You know, in New York, you got like one Big Apple grocery store where the prices are going to be twice what they are everywhere else. And everyone right. in, in South Bronx is going to it because where else are you going to get your food? That's exactly right. So these kinds of things would come up when I was doing urban food insecurity. I just didn't know that this is what it was. Mm-hmm. So an example, right, would be trying to create avenues for low-income people and people of color to get access to fresh and healthy produce that is culturally appropriate, that is location-wise close enough for them to get to, along with helping them understand how to cook it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But then I started hearing about this inverse relationship around if they grew food at home, the nutrient density of their food would be so much higher than stuff they could get at a grocery store or a farmer's market, that they would actually have to eat less food and thus spend less time cooking. And it would be more efficient for their lifestyle. Less time chewing even. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Or if they went to a farmer's market and really got to farmers that were biodynamic and knew how to preserve the nutrient density of their food between pulling it out of the ground and getting it to the farmer's market, well, that's even, they could buy less food. This is even a story that I feel like most Americans and most of our listeners still don't know, which is that the, the nutrient density of a piece of broccoli today is different than it was 30, 40 years ago. You know, we oh, got... absolutely. We, that's insane. It's a piece of broccoli. So you got to go to look at the book on how much, you know, vitamin... K or whatever, uh, uh, you know, a pound of broccoli has, it's different. It's going to be a different number now than it was, you know, when when we were kids. I know when my mom came to our house, we we joined a, a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, and got our lettuce from them. And um, this is when my mom was alive, you know, 10 years ago. And she came to the house and she had a salad and she starts eating it. And she's going, she's like so confused. She's eating this. And she said, uh, God, this is what salad tasted like when I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. That she had it had been such a slow process that that it just came back to her this rush of memories of you know 1930s <laughs> New York because she hadn't had that flavor in her mouth in so long. That's exactly right. But and that's scary in itself. So the food's oh, not even terrifying. food. Yes, exactly. So we're having to eat more to get the same amount of nutrients. And for people who are in inner cities. That has a really big impact on them. So, so then is Monsanto coming to the rescue by pouring phosphorus in the soil? Or is it, it you'd grow it at home in a little pot and it's better? Well, the question is, how do you get nutrients into food? Right. And the answer is that the microbes interacting with one another and the carbon density of the soil is the thing that creates more nutrient density. In food. Microbes? You mean little little species in the soil? Little species in the soil, yes. Crawling that whole around. thing about how um, there's more living organisms in a teaspoon of soil than there are humans on the earth, that is what I mean by microbes. So we don't want to grow it in sterile dirt then, do we? Absolutely not. <laughs> we want dirty dirt. We want real rich, <laughs> fecund, fertile dirt. And, and with poop um, in it. Lots Dirt and with lots, poop. lots and lots. Well, poop that has right. been converted into something useful and not pathogens. Um, right. But that's where you get, like, that's what microbes do, you know? What microbes will fight pathogens and create really good bacteria. And, you know, there's a whole other track I could go on about the gut microbiome and the soil microbiome and how similar they are. And right. because gut is kind of the root of all human health, when you have complexity in the soil microbiome, 
then you're getting really good gut bacteria, which helps you stay healthy because we are animals in a habitat. But I'm not going to run off on that train. But, so. but all right. So there's there's microbes in your gut uh-huh. that come from microbes in the soil that go to the plants and give them nutrients. And that when when we don't respect the interconnectedness of all these various species, we end up getting not just monoculture and mono agriculture, but but dead, uh, almost useless food that we're shoving into ourselves. And then how is this how would you see this as directly tied or metaphorically tied to our sort of sociocultural predicament? You know, when you because you talk about the shadow, you know, and it seems like that this that embraces both of these worlds. A hundred percent. And when I say shadow, I'm really talking about what's hidden because it was so clear to me that soil is still in the shadow, literally and figuratively. The idea of system fertility as being the basis of life and not whatever six or seven components of a system you have identified is the thing that keeps the system healthy is still something that is not widely understood. And I define fertility as increasing the complexity of relationships in a system. And that when the relationships have a way to get increasingly complex, that those are, that's fertility. And that's what creates the conditions conducive to life. So in social systems, for example, looking at, and this is in any, you know, it's basically organizing 101. The reason why organizing starts with one-on-ones in a community of all the different stakeholders is to get a sense of what are the relationships, what's broken down in these relationships, and what's strong about these relationships, and how do we inject more realness in terms of the ability of these people to communicate better with one another so that they can come up with action steps that have these feedback loops that create more and more interaction and more and more diversity of action in the system so that all needs can be met and that more complexity can live. The problem is when you have one or two interventions based on a bunch of assumptions about the relationships in a system that then don't work for 50% of the people. That could have been really abstract. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was going to get into the whole thing when you were talking about fertility. I was just started to think about all the ancient Babylonian fertility rites and Purim uh-huh. and Marduk and Astarte. And it's like they knew, they knew, they knew, you know, they were trying to celebrate it. But um, absolutely. We just quashed that stuff. We'll see. And what's <laughs> funny about that, and there's a whole other conversation, but the connection for me since I've been pregnant around fertility as a concept mm. and the suppression of women hasn't escaped me, especially like Raj Patel, right? Like Mm -hmm. back when he wrote Stuffed and Starved and was doing his tour about it, he would start his lectures by saying, if you want to fix the global agricultural system, end violence to women. And that was based on his research on the connecting the dots from the carrot that's sitting on our plate to the globalized agricultural system and how it works. And he's like, if you end violence to women, it would all collapse because women are the majority of the farmers in the world. Mm. And I feel like the suppression of women in different cultures over history is the suppression of fertility rights, Yeah, is then the forgetting of what fertility means, is then the suppression of fertility in soil. Like they're not disconnected at all. And that's been deliberate because it's just too scary to have that level of complexity interrupting a linear masculine patriarchal way of being. Right, so to bring it home for people then, Where have you gone in and helped people do this? So in an external, I'll give an external example and I'll give an internal example. So one external example with Soil and Shadow is that we work with the No Regrets Initiative, which is that investor philanthropist that I mentioned. And she wants to support other investors and philanthropists with understanding healthy soil so that more investment and philanthropic dollars can go to healthy soil building, specifically to practitioners and ranchers. Increasing the complexity of the relationships in the system would be looking at who are the investors and philanthropists? Are they communicating really well with the grantees and investees? Can they exchange information back and forth so that they actually know at any point what the most effective intervention is to build healthy soil? And if they know those interventions, 
then much more quickly capital can be deployed in the right areas and in the right intervention strategies. Because philanthropists and food systems all the time try to figure out what the best intervention points are. So that's an external example is creating those feedback loops in a system so that people can be communicating with each other all the time and intervention points can be identified and experimented with at a rapid pace. In an internal example, I also work with organizations that are trying to do that with their teams. In any organization, there will likely be a lot of tension and a lot of information that is not shared at a group or a collective level. It's just held within the individuals. And knowing how to get that information out of the individuals so that they're communicating it with each other and to the whole is actually rocket science. Because people have all different kind of issues with why they don't communicate the things they communicate. So on the social side, that means the teams are not as effective as they can be. And they're not as high performance because there's all these multiple levels of shadow happening where a bunch of stuff is hidden and interfering with outcomes. So social fertility for me is getting that data from the individual level to the group and the collective level so that it's out of hiding, it's out of the shadows, it can be interacted with. It can be responded to, which will thus increase the performance of the team. I mean, sometimes when that happens on a macro level, it could be a little scary. So say the recent election cycle that we just had. I mean, something was being expressed from the shadow to the culture at large, a a frustration, you know, and a, a, a sense of frustration, isolation, disempowerment. But we didn't find necessarily the healthiest most productive way to channel that or to, to feed it into a larger, healthy system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Capital Y-E-S. So the question is, how could that have been done better or more effectively? Yeah. So if I ran the world or do we, yeah. and I was the master yeah. of the universe, mistress, if I was mistress. the mistress of the universe, So a framework that I use, right, is that at the individual level, expressing what's real needs to happen in a container that's appropriate before it moves into dialogue at the intrapersonal level. So interpersonal is just with the self and intrapersonal is with one other person or a group of other people. Usually what happens at the interpersonal level is our inner child, it's fairly immature, it's pretty raw. And it's externalizing responsibility because that's how humans process things first is defensively. Usually the problem is when that initial expression crosses the boundary too quickly because externalizing responsibility in a group setting never, ever leads to connection or constructive anything. And the work that it takes at the individual level to move to personal responsibility from externalizing responsibility So that then at the group level, real solutions can happen because everyone's taking personal responsibility. I mean, there's nobody doing that right now. Congress isn't doing that. The White House ain't doing that. Social media is a social experiment in what happens when the inner child is just expressed willy-nilly with complete autonomy or a complete um, anonymity and no responsibility. So we're missing that critical, if mistress of the universe for me would mean our society re-engages the value around moving from externalizing responsibility to personal responsibility in a way that feels very empowered before moving into group dialogue. Right. Well, right. I mean, and a lot of that it, it is spiritual. I mean, it's understanding... Uh, if you understood uh, karma, even, you wouldn't be able to externalize anything. I mean, it, our corporations make a living off externalizing the environmental, mm-hmm. social, and economic damage, you know, onto the roads or the people or the slaves or the Chinese or whoever it is. In in some ways, it, once people start to realize that, and it's, it's soil mechanics in the end, that we're all connected, that we're all part of the same organism here, or certainly intimately uh, uh, involved Mm-hmm. Uh, then you can't externalize anything. That's 100% true. <laughs> Where's the out, you know? Where's Yeah, there is no out. Planet? Mm-hmm. But that's terrifying. You know, right. Right, that's too much for people to grab, grapple with right away. Mm-hmm. Which is I why it has to be done delicately. 
Right. And you're finding people are responsive, though, to this, to your delicate communication of this. I'm finding that over time, I get better and better about keeping people at the interpersonal level in defensiveness and in reactiveness for as long as they need to be before they can organically move into personal responsibility. Mm. Before, I would really try to push them from interpersonal to intrapersonal too quickly because I felt like we got goals to do, we got outcomes, we got to build social systems, we got to do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But artificially moving to group because of external pressures and not because it actually is prepared to move there means that whatever's there just gets suppressed. And that right. can actually and we're be making terrible. This, we're making the same mistake that they did. Exactly. You know, instru instrumentalizing everything. So even with the greatest dedication, you still end up with those partial That's results. That's exactly right. Okay. And then people are much less willing to engage that process again because they think it's the process that didn't work as opposed to the process just not being used effectively. Right. And the thing is, the the farther in time we go, the more desperate it feels. And then the less patience people like me have to do it the right way that you're describing. But it's the only way. It's the only way that begs lasting results. And that's kind right. of what you were talking about with the spiritual piece <laughs> is like, yeah. this is not abstract for someone like me. Like as an African-American right. woman, I'm eight and a half months pregnant with my first child and it's a little boy. And I have had to go through a pretty deep psychological process to reconcile the fact that I can't keep him safe in a world like mm. this. He's going to encounter so much suffering and probably a lot of trauma, whether minor or major. And I can live from a place of fear and try to constantly protect from that. Or I can live from this place of the fact that we don't come here as humans to not suffer. Like then we wouldn't have egos. We wouldn't be here in the first place. So mm. my job is just to steward in the same way we can't own land. I don't own my child. I don't own my people and their suffering. All I can do is steward and create container so that grief can be processed so that soil fertility can be shared about, but being attached to any kind of outcome with that is a path to crazy. And that yeah. is such a hard thing to grasp onto. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky time to bring a child into this world, especially if you're a, a conscious human. I mean, I have a daughter and it changed everything because now I have a different stake in this game than I did before, or at least it feels that way. I mean, yep. it, it's a whole thing. I mean, it is, but it means that on a certain level, you are hopeful about our ability as a species to uh, uh, find the light. Yes. And more than anything, I'm hopeful about the fact that every generation that's born is so out of the box and incomprehensible to the previous generation that that there's just hope in that, you know, I think that I'm, I like to delude myself into thinking I didn't graduate from high school that long ago until I talked to a high schooler. And I'm like, what planet are mm. you from? <laughs> yeah. But that means that they're going to be able to interact in the world and think of things that I have no concept of. And I'm really hopeful about the way that I conceive of the world. So to have the arrogance to think that the next generation isn't going to be able to find the solution to what they've inherited is, it's just, it's arrogant. Right. Let them choose. And hope, right. Hope is way more humble in that sense. Exactly. Beautiful. So glad that you uh, made time to do this. Me too. In the, in the midst of all that's happening. Mm -hmm. And where should people go? So where to uh, uh... Uh, go to my personal website, nikkisylvestri.com, and to learn cool. more about the soil stuff specifically and the metaphors and all the things I've been talking about, that's soilandshadow.com. Soilandshadow.com. Cool. We'll put both links on your uh, the page on on our Perfect. site of this show. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Soil and Shadow founder Nikki Silvestri. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad 
here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hello, Team Human friends. I just want to take a second to thank all of those who are supporting us via Patreon. Your contributions really help make this weekly show possible. It means a lot to us. And a big warm thank you to those who have been sending emails, guest suggestions, joining in on the Slack conversations. Your participation and the way you're making Team Human come alive in your own communities is really inspiring. And thanks also to Suzanne Sloman and Green Rabbit Bakery for the amazing Thanksgiving breads and cookies. They were delicious. The music you're hearing in the intro and outro, as usual, thanks to Fugazi and Discord Records for letting us use the track. And in the middle, a little uh, Team Human original. Thanks so much. My name is Stephen Bartolome. I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human. Our last best hope for peeps. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 